The opinions expressed on this WebmasterRadio.fm program are those of the host, guests, and callers, and do not reflect those of the staff, management, or advertisers of WebmasterRadio.fm. Any rebroadcast or retransmission of this program without the express written consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning and welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. I am Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center, your host today, and please be seated. Uh, we have a great show for you today. We're going to start off the, the, the first half hour with Hank Hulquist. He's the Vice President for Federal Regulatory Affairs for AT&T, um, a small startup you may have heard of um, over the years. And then in the second half hour, we're scheduled to have Representative Dana Rohrbacher, a congressman from um, Orange County, California, and he's going to be talking about a patent reform bill that's pending in Congress that some are charging is a, a, a bank bailout bill in disguise. So we'll be talking about that in the second half hour. But first, let me start off with, with Hank Hulquist. Hank is, um, as I said, the vice president of um, Federal Regulatory Affairs for AT&T. He's been with them um, close to a decade now, about seven years. And before that, he was with MCI. Um, he's, um, most importantly, he's a native of the great city of Providence. And Hank, are you with us? Yes, I am, Bennett. And thank you for joining us. And um, did, I, did I get the the uh, details right on you? Absolutely. Okay, I left out the uh, the the Rhodes Scholarship and the Science Award and all that stuff. But um, so Hank, um, AT and T is in, in the news lately um, because it seems to want to um, pair up with um, a nice another small startup company, T Mobile, and um, and it seems to be getting um, there's some debate about that on Capitol Hill. What 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 is um, well, what are the what is the benefits to the the, the consumer of, of of an AT and T T Mobile merger? Well, I guess I'll try to save you reading the thousands of pages that have been filed about that, and I think AT and T alone has probably filed over five hundred pages with the FCC on the benefits, and just give you the short version. Um, you know, we see the the benefits of the merger as clear, allowing us to significantly expand our capacity in a way that will benefit our customers, and also allowing us significantly to extend our build out of 4G LTE, long term evolution wireless service, to places in the country that we otherwise would not be able to do so, um, reaching ultimately more than 97 percent of the population of the country. And and what do you, what do you take of the arguments against it that this may cause too much concentration in the marketplace? I, our view clearly is that the wireless marketplace is significant is highly competitive today. Um, upon completion of the merger, will continue to be highly competitive. I, I mean, the way I look at it is the traditional competition story that we ask um, when when policymakers look at mergers is: Is this merger? Will this merger allow the uh, merged entity to reduce output and raise prices? And I think that story is a hard story to believe when clearly the reason for the merger is to allow us to expand output. Now, in, in terms of 
talking about output, there's a, been some debate recently about a, a recent AT&T move to um, establish um, usage um, caps or limits in, the, in its internet service. And um, you know, could you explain what, what the what the um, what that policy is and what what's uh, motivating it? So I guess it's probably at least a year ago, maybe longer now, since AT and T um, changed its wireless uh, uh, data pricing from um, a pricing that um, on its face was um, described as unlimited to a, a pricing that allows customers to choose different levels of a usage allowance. Um, and, you know, that change has taken effect. Uh, consumers have reacted, I think, very well to it. We found that it's a fairer and um, more uh, – it's a way of pricing the service that allows users who are lower volume users um, to pay less than users who are higher volume users. We have recently announced uh, a similar, though slightly different, um, approach on the wireline side. Um, with uh, just the, again, it, it basically involves uh, instead of two tiers, one tier with um, charges for usage in excess of that tier in the in our DSL traditional DSL footprint that. Allows Usage allowance would be 150 gig per month, and in our Uverse um, footprint, the usage allowance would be 250 gig per month, with then a $10 additional charge for every 50 gig above that. And do you have a, any uh, data yet in terms of the number of consumers that actually go above the um, the limits they choose? Yeah, it's it, it, in, in looking at the wireline side, it's an extremely low percentage of our users. So less than two percent of our users will cross these um, usage allowances. I, I don't know if you've you know your, if you, what your familiarity level with of this is, but the usage on the of of data services on the internet um, is it's not it's not you know it's not distributed along the traditional normal distribution. You know, people think of a bell curve. It follows a distribution that uh, uh, statisticians described as a power law. It's kind of, you know, any place you see an 80-20 distribution where 20% of some, you know, users account for 80% of some resource, that's, 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 that's kind of a power law distribution. And so that's what we have. So the cop... The top couple of percent of users on, on broadband services probably account for more than 20% of the total usage, and so in these circumstances, what we've you know we've instituted a policy that will affect only the um, the very top users, and will allow them I think to um, decide whether it makes more sense for them to modify their behavior or to pay a little more and get a little more usage. Now the the timing of the the release of this policy is, is interesting in that the in terms of what is happening at the market at this very time as there's more and more usage of streaming media and and some critics have charged that what 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 is going on here is that AT&T is trying to more or less discipline um its users as, as to you know to be more or less um, be on a diet um, when it comes to using streaming media, just at the, the moment when it's starting to take off? Um, I guess my response to that would be to say it's true that um, there are more and more users of streaming media, and a lot of our customers are using it. And those customers, you know, the way they're using it does not present any problem under, you know, the the usage allowances we've created. I think that 
it's not the case that only the top 2% of users are using streaming media. So ultimately, this uh, the level of usage allowance that we've created is certainly um, quite consistent with um, the vast majority of users of streaming media. And so the theory being that as as streaming media gets more adoption, will that also mean then um, an increase in in the cap? I think as the average utilization goes up, and let's say you reached a point where you know a much larger percentage of your users were above the usage allowance, certainly would you would want to revisit that um, that approach because again the goal is really not to um, interfere with the usage patterns of most users and only to um, impact that very tip of the hockey stick in that in that distribution. Ah, oh, he said the magic word, hockey stick. Um, but we'll talk about that later. Um, <laughs> there is a game seven coming up. But um, now, how was the, what is the reaction you've re- felt on Capitol Hill to the um, the usage cap? I'm not aware of any reaction on the Hill from from an FCC perspective. You may have read the um, the uh, Open Internet decision that the FCC adopted last December. And in that, the FCC made clear that it um, did not intend in any way to um, get in the way of uh, uh, providers experimenting with different kinds of pricing, particularly around usage. So I I think from a public policy perspective, there's not a lot of surprise about the the move toward uh, more usage-sensitive pricing uh, in broadband. Now, as we we talk about that, it, it, we do have a another development that's happening at the moment is that there is a shift from uh, the pl- the platform that is the predominant platform in use from being a you know a desktop internet shift you know platform to actually being a, a PDA mobile platform you know as seems more and more I don't think it's the majority but it, it's definitely become increasingly used. And so, in that platform, I think people are used. There is some, you know, some tiered caps in there or usage limits in, in that respect. Um, so it would seem that maybe the consumers are already used to that concept. Yeah, I mean, I think the hard translation for consumers is really consumers don't understand, you know, what a megabyte is or what a gigabyte is, and it, it, it's it's more abstract than in the old you know phone world where people were used to usage in terms of either per minute charges or in wireless you had for a long time sort of the buckets of minutes people understand minutes so i think you know it is incumbent on broadband providers to help consumers better understand what these measures mean and how their usage is um sort of how they how their usage in terms of what they're doing drives these measures so a big part of this i think is the importance of providing consumers with you know tools that allow them to assess their usage and understand where they are with respect to their usage um plan you know after seeing jay leno on the streets of of la asking people what day good friday falls on and seeing people say saturday and sunday i i think you have an uphill struggle on that one but um you know, in terms of you know, 
adoption of broadband and, and especially in the transfer to a, the mobile area. Um, we've talked offline about you know in terms of broadband penetration and you know in terms of the overall national broadband plan. Um, you know, what has been your, your role in that respect? So back in I guess it was 2010, the FCC delivered to Congress the first national broadband plan, and and that plan was really in creation for about a year or maybe a little bit longer. Um, and the FCC I think undertook an exhaustive process of public comment, workshops, field events to try to get as much information as it could about the state of broadband and not just not just the snapshot state but also trends and what's going to happen. Basically, the FCC set out to answer questions around where are we now, where will we be if nothing is done, and then let's identify gaps. And so we played, you know, we were very engaged in that proceeding, and, you know, we tried to provide the FCC with whatever resources we had to try to answer the questions that we thought we had competence to help them answer. Um, And sort of my Cliff Notes version of what came out of the broadband plan is, you know, in this country we have a 35% problem and a a less than 10% problem. The 35% problem is the percentage of the population that at that time um, had not adopted broadband, and the less than 10% of problem is the percentage of the population that did not have access to broadband. And and how do you how do you address that? So I think the traditionally in telecom, you know, we've had for a long time a lot of programs around what I just described as the less than 10% problem. That's sort of the availability problem. So there's a long history with universal service, and you know this goes back to the 34 Act, and you know the 96 Act dealt with it. And so we've had programs, and you know currently, you know just from an FCC perspective, there's a you know high cost subsidies in the phone world that amount to close to four and a half billion dollars a year. Um, the adoption side, though, is an area that I think sort of a traditional telecom uh, policy person like me is less, um, I would say, less uh, confident of how to deal with. So the FCC has had adoption programs in the phone world focused on low-income um, people, and um, to some extent those programs may translate into broadband, but I- I've always been of the view that the the problem you're trying to solve in broadband is very different from the phone problem. And the phone problem, everybody, even the people who couldn't afford telephone service, really understood what the value of phone service was. And so helping them adopt was really a pretty straightforward question of um, coming up with a, a rational program to provide them with discounts. I think in broadband it's trickier because a lot of it is not no, un, not knowing or understanding the relevance or usefulness of broadband, um, not you know having obstacles in the way of form of digital literacy, not having computers. I mean, so I think it's a much more complicated landscape, and it's one certainly where um, I think. Uh, policymakers and, and, and industry and, and everyone should be trying to find, you know, sort of let's try different things here. Let's let's see what works before we embark on a, you know, a one-size-fits-all solution. Now, so in, in looking at the problem then, you see that the, the main problem is, is really socioeconomic, that the, the, in terms of areas that are, are well-off, 
there does not seem to be a problem in terms of adoption? Yeah, I would say demographic, socioeconomic. I think those are the factors that are, you know, if you peel back the data behind the uh, non-adopters, that they, they correlate highly with certain things in that complex. Now, um, one other issue that keeps coming up, in, um, in also because there are periodic studies that re- releasing new data, is where the United States stands vis-a-vis the rest of the world in terms of broadband adoption. Um, now we, we've talked about that a little bit offline, and I think this, there's some debate in terms of wh- how whether we're comparing apples to apples or apples to oranges. Um, would you care to elaborate on that? Yeah, so this is one of those areas where there's been you know just constant, uh, I would say, uh, debate about what the data are, what the data mean, what are the good data, and I, I, I find it sort of frustrating in the sense of. You know, if all we want to do is create some ranking list to have a gotcha moment, that that to me isn't terribly interesting from a policy perspective. So someone, you know, at one point pointed out that even if every single home in America um, subscribed to broadband, we would still be, I think, like ninth on the list, and that just gets has to do with the way the statistics were were calculated with respect to um, per capita and the fact that household size is larger here than in some of these other countries. So you know that, that that's to me though is just symptomatic that we should get past you know the data debates and just try to figure out are we satisfied? Do we think are we doing? Is, is the country in a place where it's satisfied? I think the broadband plan adopted by the FCC says that for a lot of the country, things are, you know, we are satisfied, but that there are certain areas where either from an adoption perspective or from an availability perspective, that there are gaps and that we should focus on closing those gaps rather than worrying about whether we're 10th, 11th, 12th, or 13th on some list that we could debate the value of the data until the cows come home. Well, um... Well, let's we can get one of the cows to talk. Is they would also talk about the speed issue, and you know I think that may be more of a relevant debate because and we we talked recently. We've had um, someone from the uh, Greater Chattanooga Chamber of Commerce, you know, to talk about their new um, one gig um, high speed internet rollout, and we were also talking about. The um, the difference between the, some of the high speeds available in places like South Korea and Japan than the U.S. and how you know in, if you go by you know, the average speeds in Japan, the, the time it took a U.S. Um, person to download uh, I forget how many like twenty MRIs um, in Japan they they would not only would they have downloaded it but they also would have down, been able to download the entire Star Wars um, series of movies seven times. And um, you know, it's, it's just an illustration. And so, if they're if they're able to do that at substantially higher speeds, you know, as new technologies emerge that require those higher speeds, they're going to have a leg up on us. And um, so, I mean, yeah. that gets into a whole debate around you know government policies and and how things are done, and really differences in housing patterns. Um, obviously, in um, denser environments, it's possible to get higher speeds. I think my view is most that, uh, again, going back to the broadband plan, most Americans have today and will have in, into the future access to very high-speed services. So 
I think the top line speeds um, are have been going up every year. Will continue to go up. Um, for the vast majority of use cases that things people actually do on the internet, whether it's streaming video, uh, video uh, chats. Um, Voice over IP, uh, web browsing—all the things people actually do. Um, some of these speeds, you know, you mentioned a gig. I mean, they're just not. There's not a, a set of use cases today that um, for which those kind of speeds really are needed. And so, I think people um, do have access to the speeds that they need to do the the things they want to do um, today on the internet. And my expectation is that will continue into the future. I mean, and, and talking with the, um, the representative from the, the Chattanooga Chamber of Commerce, that he, he did say that there has been um, a very positive response to it, not just among within, within the city, but in terms of businesses outside of Chattanooga in terms of con- considering relocating. And, and so I don't know if whether it, the need is used or not. It definitely um, is generating business for the city. And so there's definitely some value being placed on that higher speed. So that that's certainly, and that's also consistent with um, one of the recommendations that came out of the National Broadband Plan, which was that, you know, there should be a targeting of what the plan describes as anchor institutions, schools, libraries, medical facilities, places like that, to ensure that they have, um, you know, very high speeds, higher than, you know, what you would normally expect for residential users. So I, I, I think... There's a recognition of the value of that, but there's also a cost to it. I mean, the cost, the, according to the people who wrote the National Broadband Plan, the cost of deploying fiber to the home to every American would be north of $350 billion. Um, I think as a country, no one really thinks that, in, given the fiscal situation we're in, that anyone would be prepared to make that kind of commitment. So you're saying Americans have enough fiber already? I'm saying <laughs> that's a great question. What I'm saying is I anticipate that for most Americans the speeds that they have will continue to rise along with the things they can do with broadband and that they will have better than adequate um quite high quality services available to them. But recognizing that there are places where population density is low where the deployment of broadband facilities is a challenge from a business perspective. Um, we're going to take a, a short break. When we come back, we'll be we'll have Hank Holquist. He is the vice president for federal regulatory affairs for AT and T. Um, we'll be right back. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Two, one, booster ignition. Ascend into new heights of ranking and revenue with a search engine-friendly online shopping cart that's ready for liftoff. Introducing Ascender Cart. Ascender Cart optimizes your shopping cart with easy-to-use SEO tools that will help build keywords, titles, and tags for top search engine rankings. Get all of the advantages of having a shopping cart on your site and monitor your progress with regular reports in just a click. Prepare to launch your shopping cart to the top of the search engines with AscenderCart. Learn more about what AscenderCart can do for you at AscenderCart.com. A-S-C-E-N-D-E-R-C-A-R-T.com. 
Our clients have earned over $1 billion. Now it's your turn. With over 20,000 products to promote across a huge variety of niches, ClickBank provides countless ways for any affiliate to make money. You can promote any product immediately. No contracts required. Looking for recurring commissions? Upsell products? ClickBank's got them. And best of all, you can make up to 75% commissions. Ready to become the next ClickBank success story? Sign up now for free at ClickBank.com. Shopping for the best e-commerce tips, tricks, and techniques? Looking for better ways to push your product out of your online store? Watch your shopping cart overflow because you've found the e-com experts. The e-com experts show you what you need to know to be a successful online retailer. Learn their search marketing strategies, their web marketing wisdom, and their calculated conversion measures. Ecom Experts, Mondays at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. This is Bennett Kelly with Internet Law Center we're talking with Hank Hulquist from AT&T. Hank, I, um, I'm reminded of a story by, uh, I believe it was um, the Clinton's energy secretary, who, whose name now is escaping me. And very early on, she, um, she told her staff that she, she didn't want people talking in an acronym. She wanted people talking in English. And so she uh, put up a jar on her desk and said, anytime you use, a, use an acronym, um, you're going to have to put a quarter in. And one of her staff persons said, all right. And he just said, you know, screw it. And he's put a 20 in right up front. And so I ter- imagine in your, in your practice, when you deal with AT&T, the FCC, um, and FTC right now, the merger, DOJ, and I, I imagine your, your, your day is full of acronyms. Yeah, I think it's very easy when you're inside of this world to forget how jargon-filled and acronym-filled our ordinary discourse becomes. And I think I think it's create, it does create a barrier for um, other people who don't, you know, aren't engaged in this full time to try, when when you try to explain these things to them. It, it does. Yeah, Washington speak can sound completely different. Now, one thing um, tangentially talking on that subject of net neutrality and. That was um, I noticed when that issue first kind of came to the um, having prominence on Capitol Hill was I believe it was like 2006 and, and shortly after um, I think the some of the statements made by the, the then chairman of AT and T and but one thing I noticed was that while there was a strong um, groundswell or at least um, grassroots support for net neutrality um, it, within certain the industry. That they weren't mobilized at all on Capitol Hill, and you know clearly uh, AT and T and the telecoms have had a major presence on you know Capitol Hill's going back you know for years and years. And I was just wondering over t- if you've noticed any major change in the presence of the internet companies on Capitol Hill. 
Well, I think, you know, when you say the Internet companies, you're by and large talking about companies that, you know, as compared to their status today, you know, barely existed or didn't exist 15 years ago, 10 years ago. So inevitably, as these companies have become um, more successful, they have, I think, found themselves either willingly or unwillingly drawn more and more into debates in Washington. And, and you know, I think there's it's been interesting over the years to watch. There's been different kinds of advice given to, uh, you know, companies from Silicon Valley. Some people have said, stay away from Washington. Other people have said, you need to go to Washington. But I think it's clear that... Um, you know, overall, as they have grown and succeeded as companies, they have come to have more and more involvement here in D.C. And it, I was at a, there's an event every year in Silicon Valley called the Tech Policy Summit. And I, I, um, I think it was 2008, yeah, I believe it was the election year. And one, there was some executive, I won't main, mention who he was, but he actually bragged about the fact that he doesn't pay attention to Washington. And it it just struck me as I don't know was hubris or just or just dumb. I mean, basically, he more or less was asking for a kick me sign. I mean, I should have given him one. <laughs> and it, it, I think that's changing over time. But I think you had a, a very young industry with a lot of people who hadn't come from in terms of their prior experience from regulated environments anyway. And so they didn't understand what the role of Washington could be. And, uh, yeah, so I think, I think today, especially, you know, with, there's a lot of work going on on the Hill related to privacy and, and you know, issues that are in, intimately intertwined with um, the business of any number of Internet companies. So I guess I would agree. I don't know if it's uh, something to celebrate or the opposite, but there certainly is more um, attention, I think, being paid now. Now, on the, the flip side of that is also awareness on Capitol Hill. And you know, I actually had the opportunity of doing a Internet 101 um, with a colleague of mine for the senior staff on the House Energy and Commerce Committee. And you know, it, it struck me that you know, what, they, what they did understand um, and what they did not understand. And, and I was, I'm wondering if you've seen a, a much of a, a shift in terms of the, the curve of knowledge on Capitol Hill um, particularly with members on you know internet and these type of issues. Uh, frankly, I deal primarily with the the FCC, and you know only occasionally manage to find my way over to the Hill. Um, so from my distant sort of perch, um, which probably doesn't seem distant to a lot of people, um, I guess <laughs> I would say I think there has been some you know. Um, Im- improvement in the knowledge base. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think I have as good a handle on that as many other people do. Yeah, it, it, it was interesting. I had a, a, a kind of a eureka moment where we were trying to explain that the uh, uh, spyware bill that the House had passed in 2004 actually would have made um, such nefarious items as um, Java, um, HTML, in addition to cookies, uh, would have made them illegal as spyware. And so in trying, we tried to explain you know, the role of each of those items. And halfway through, one of, the member, one of the staff people said, oh, I get it. You guys aren't so bad. And which, you know, in some ways, it was, was satisfying. But the, the flip side was, I thought, you, you should have known that. And that then the, the opposite thing, reaction was, well, she, she's a smart woman, but you weren't at this table last year when they passed that bill. 
And yeah, so yeah. I, I mean, when you think about so think about that, I mean, you're talking about these are smart people who um, you know are highly educated, and um, it, it's even a bigger challenge when you think about how do you translate that into into the public at large when it comes to explaining complex policy issues. It, it's quite difficult. Oh, it is, and that always is an issue, and especially with new technology. And um, and 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 I just having looked at some of the offices in Capitol Hill, I, I think they're also maybe a little bit behind, you know, techn- technologically in terms of what they have too. So you know, their exposure may be different. Um, now, on the issue of net neutrality, it seems like that the the House this year has made a, a very strong statement of opposition to that. Do, do you see that as being a a, a dead issue for the moment? I mean, from an FCC perspective, certainly, you know, there's sort of procedural things going on that um, are um, related to the um, the ultimate publication of the FCC's order in the Federal Register, which hasn't happened yet. And then um, everyone's assuming that then appeals will be ripe, and some parties have indicated that they plan to appeal. I think everything's kind of, I, I wouldn't say dead, I would say the issue is uh, on vacation. Um, vacation. And do we expect a postcard anytime soon? Hard to say. Um, I, I guess the, the conventional wisdom is that sometime in the next three to six months, the order will be published in the Federal Register, and then we'll see what happens with the appeals process. I mean, when you sort of start to time that out, you could imagine that there will probably be an appellate decision sometime in the second half of 2012. Okay. And um, now, in terms of uh, what are some of the other issues that you see emerging that um, we haven't covered yet? Um, Well, the biggest issue, you know, on my mind these days gets back to this broadband deployment problem, really. And and I primarily focused on um, the FCC's efforts to reform its universal service program, which, as I mentioned, has... um, is consists of about four and a half billion dollars annually, and um, that's, that's for the high cost part of the program. There's a, there's another four billion that goes to schools and libraries and rural health care and low income programs. But just focusing on the high cost part of the program, you know, reforming that from a program that supports uh, telephone service to a program that supports broadband, and it's a very complicated thing. It's really been stuck in um, you know. Uh, failed attempts to reform it now for almost a decade, but I think there's a lot of hope that this FCC is prepared to um, really finally make some changes to that program. Now, um, one second. Um, great. Um, we're going to be taking a, a break in a minute. Hank, I want to thank you very much for, for joining us. I hope you consider joining us again. Um, full disclosure, uh, Hank actually um, went to high school. Um, what, you were two years ahead of me? I think that's right, Bennett. Um, at, at the fine uh, LaSalle Academy in Providence, Rhode Island. And uh, we, we, also came, we also grew up on the same street, but what, several miles apart? Yeah, I think it was probably two to three miles apart. The, uh, the very fine, fine um, section of Potter's Avenue in <laughs> Providence, which um, if you can avoid, I, I highly recommend. But any event, Hank, I really appreciate you coming on, and um, best to all your family, and um, hope, hope you'll come back again. Well, thanks for inviting me, Bennett. It was a pleasure, and I certainly would be happy to come back. Great. Uh, we'll, when we come back, we'll have Congressman Dana Rohrbacker. Thank you. 
Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. MySEOTool.com is your all-in-one SEO management resource. MySEOTool.com makes it easy to optimize and oversee all of your SEO efforts. Line-by-line detailed reports help you identify any problems and show you how to fix them. MySEOTool.com is completely automated. Once you use it, you will see a rise in your search rankings and traffic. Try MySEOTool risk-free today. Go to MySEOTool.com. MySEOTool.com. If you're looking for a new multifaceted SEO and social media tool set, look for The Raven. Raven has the important tools that every internet marketer needs. Raven offers customized metrics for managing link building campaigns, social media campaigns, with campaign reporting and research tools that you can easily manage. Build up campaign performance for your clients and give your team the tools that will make them soar. If you want to increase your internet marketing revenue, look for The Raven. Go to raventools.com. That's raventools.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. TopSEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. Rock the world with LinkedIn. Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, or on demand anytime inside the Internet Marketing Channel. Only on WebmasterRadio.fm. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and we'll be joining us will be Congressman Dana Rohrbacher, who represents the Orange County um, in California and um, in Congress. Um, Brasco, do we have the congressman? Here's a story. So I got first his secretary, and then I got – or his assistant, and then I got Congressman Rohrbacher's scheduler. And he told me that the congressman has not arrived at his spot stable enough for him to go ahead and be put in with us. But in the next few minutes, we should have him on the line. I am on hold. Great. Um, just by way of background, the, the congressman um, is a former speechwriter for Ronald Reagan, and um, he's widely regarded to be one of the most conservative members of Congress. Um, but he's really taking up the lead on this, on leading the opposition to um, a patent reform bill um, called the Invent America Act, um, which otherwise, up until recently, seemed to be sailing through Congress. And what's interesting is that the uh, very conservative um, Congressman Rohrbacher has teamed up with um, liberals such as um, John Conyers, the um, former chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and it's created a pair of unlikely bedfellows. Um, but the same is true is happening in, outside Congress. We have interest groups ranging from Ralph Nader groups to um, you know Phyllis Schlafly on the right, um, also teaming up to raise awareness on this bill. Um, 
And so you know, the congressman has been um, been in Congress for a number of years. Um, he was first elected, I believe, in 1993. Um, so he's been there uh, over co- coming up on close to 20 years. And um, but he's a very colorful character, um, and he, he's definitely one who who uh, is not afraid to speak his mind. And um, but he's. Um, He's been representing the area, for those of you familiar with it, that covers um, kind of the coastal areas of Orange County, Huntington Beach, Costa Mesa, Seal Beach, um, Palos Verdes, um, all the way up to Long Beach. And um, I think at one point he was my congressman for a few years. And um, so he also was gained attention. He actually went into Afghanistan at one point um, working um, – you know, going in and um, with the this is when the Soviets were there. Um, going, he went in with the Mujahideen um, to assess uh, the situation there, and he got some publicity on that. But um, we hopefully will have him soon. Um, he's been very active in um, foreign policy and military affairs, um, which is you know that, that his district covers a lot of major defense um, facilities as well as defense contractors. So it's definitely something that's very relevant to what his district. But um, he routinely is rated among the the most conservative members of Congress and, um, as I mentioned, was a former Reagan um, um, speechwriter. So what is this bill that we're talking about? It's the Invent America Act, and the idea is that um, there needs to be some updating of, of the patent system um, and also to conform with some of the changes that have taken place uh, in other countries. And, and one major change would be a shift from priority to the, those who invent first versus those who file first. And there's some who claim that that actually is an anti-inventor position. Because it really favors the large companies that have the ability to garner the resources and, and hire the patent lawyers to, you know, to submit their claims over the people who actually spent, you know, don't have that infrastructure and are focusing on their investment. In fact, uh, one of the early um, patent boards had a member known as Thomas Jefferson who explicitly rejected that position. But the provision that everyone is, seems to be steamed up of is a, is a provision, in, I believe it's in Section 18 of the bill, that would retroactively grant um, financial institutions certain benefits. And uh, how the congressman talk about it in a little more detail, but it more or less will enable them to invalidate patents retroactively that they've been unsuccessful at invalidating in, um, through litigation. And so they're more or less doing an end run around um, the court system to try to win in Congress what they have been able to win in the courts. And I think one of the principal issues is their liability for um, infringing of patents involving um, check processing. And that's been an ongoing matter. And uh, and so this is this really seems like an end run. And when you consider the fact that we had, a, a, you know, the major TARP funds that were provided to the banks – you know, with the expectation that you know, the liquidity would then be enable them to help fund Main Street, and the money instead was held onto, or even worse, used for bonuses, um, such as you know, Merrill, Bank of America used a large lot of their money for bonuses for Merrill Lynch employees. 
Um, and then when you consider the fact that on top of that, you have the banks, um, there's evidence that they have um, falsified evidence in order to facilitate foreclosures rather than showing restraint in that area, as, as has been urged by the president and Congress. And on top of that, there's also evidence that the um, the banks had have been also frustrated some of the investigations going on in that space. Um, they don't necessarily seem to be getting the, the corporate citizenship award at the moment, and so why should they be rewarded with such a plum? Well, this was a provision that was it was kind of put in um, a little notice provision. It was put in through in the Senate um, by Senator Schumer of New York, who clearly you know represents many of these institutions and. Um, and then the bill itself passed the Senate, um, like ninety something to three or seven, and some really un, um, overwhelming vote. And it has been approved by the House Judiciary Committee, and is expected to come down for a vote um, late later today, if not later this week. And so the, the congressmen and um, several, including and some several Democrats on the House, have been leading the, the charge against the bill and, and hoping. Um, to get it recommitted to the House Rules Committee um, f- in order to force, um, one, to postpone the vote, but also to f- uh, to um, establish a rule that will enable a more extensive debate on the measure. Because unlike the Senate, where bills are debated indefinitely, every bill brought to the floor of a House has to have a rule that specifies how long it will be debated and how many amendments would be a- allowed, et cetera. Because otherwise, with a a body that has 435 members, it would be pure chaos. Not to suggest <laughs> that that doesn't occur anyway. But um, so that's um, that's what we're hoping to have the congressman. Um, and well, I Bennett, believe we just got word. We have fact, Congressman Rohrbacher. Yes. Congressman. Yes, I'm right here. Thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time. Well, and I was just doing day, but I'm an glad intro. we got together. Um, just doing an intro on the bill, um, the patent reform bill, and particularly Section 18. And you know, do you think it's fair to call that a bank bailout? Uh, I think it's fair to say that the, uh, uh, the there is a special interest insert into the uh, into the bill, and that it's uh, and that the banks are the ones who are going to benefit uh, uh, from it. Unlike every other group in the country, I mean, this is. Uh, uh, they're going to have a special privilege of uh, of negating a uh, a patent <laughs> that uh, any, in any other business uh, they'd have to pay the royalties to the inventor. And in fact, if they tried to negate it in the court system, and have failed, have they not? That's correct. This is just a, to talk about uh, uh, a corrupt. Uh, uh, I consider it corrupt. Uh, uh, you know, just application of, uh, of 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 government power in order to change the law, the rules of the game, uh, in order to benefit one group of people. And, and what we're talking about is the, the ownership rights of, of, of inventors is being changed in order to help a group of bankers. And that's now, you, this raises certain constitutional questions, does it not? Well, a lot, there's a lot of constitutional questions about the, uh, uh, about the overall bill, and this is one of them. But I think there's many factors in this bill that are unconstitutional and uh, uh, it, you know these people they haven't they don't give a damn about the Constitution anyway what they care about is harmonizing our law with the rest of the world well guess what harmonizing our law with the rest of the world may not be in keeping with our Constitution 
After all, America's Constitution protects the individual rights to a much greater degree than those uh, constitutions and law structures in different countries around the world. So why do we want to harmonize with them to weaken our system? And, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, unconstitutional. Just uh, the very first part of it changes uh, what they call the first to invent versus the first to file. Uh, our country from the day one, and in the Constitution itself, it says the inventor is the one who's going to be given the rights of ownership of his invention. And uh, they've changed that now to the European words, which are the first to file. So you have some entity filing and beats out the real inventor because they managed to, to get the, because they managed to have a stable of lawyers. Maybe it's an overseas company that stumbled across some intelligence report talking about the development of this new technology. They they end up owning the technology. Now, um, you're teamed on in opposing this bill with John Conyers and and several other uh, liberal Democrats, and you know, I'm sure that doesn't happen every day. Not that it never happens, but given the fact that you have people like yourself and, and Congressman Sensenbrenner. Um, teamed with Conyers and, and some of the others, Nancy shouldn't Pelosi that be a wake-up call to the House Nancy, that there's something but, uh, seriously Marcy wrong Kaptur. here? Um, Marcy Kaptur is a very active Democrat. and Several other really top Democrats are with us in this. In fact, I would think that we're going to get a higher proportion of Democrat votes in this than we are a Republican. Now, when when is the vote scheduled? Well, right now it's not scheduled because uh, we have managed to raise so many serious issues that they can't handle it. And uh, uh, just like the very constitutionality of it, uh, uh, we uh, demanded, we, I, I went out with Marcy Kaptur, we got 50 members of the House to sign a letter demanding a debate on the constitutionality of the, uh, of the issue before us. So we're going to have a, a, a separate debate on the constitutionality of the bill. And uh, Conyers and Jim Sensenbrenner will be presenting our side, and I'm not sure who will be on their side, probably Lamar Smith. And that in and of itself is, is, a, is something that's a major deterrent to them. Now, the bill passed the Senate something like 97 to 3 or you know, something of that magnitude. You know, oh, yeah. Was, they, is there they, an expectation that it will, it will sail through the House? Well, let me put it this way. They had planned to try to ram this through. I'll show you how, how sinister it is or how arrogant they are. Uh, today's the day of the uh, uh, White House picnic for the for congressional picnic. So all the members of Congress will go to the picnic uh, <laughs> later on about uh, at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, uh, they planned that they were going to have the debate on the patent bill after the presidential picnic, which means nobody, but nobody would hear it. And uh, uh, then, yeah, so these guys are, uh, and, and they're, they're pushing it through now before anybody has a chance to contact the various people in the public who would be opposed to this, uh, I call it a patent grab bill. I, this is this our, our patent, uh, uh, this, this is the, uh, uh, a bill, it's not a patent reform bill, it's a patent, patent ripoff bill. And uh, so I've just been calling it the ripoff bill, but... Most of the people in the United States, whenever you hear the word patent, they won't pay attention to it. But in reality, it's our patent system that's made us prosperous. Now, it's interesting you said that, the whole, you know, the snooze factor on patent. But yet, you know, this seems to have really caught fire. And um, I, how do, what do you attribute that to? Well, I think there are people like yourself and, uh, and others 
who are uh, now have the ability to go directly to uh, people and say and draw their attention to something that in the past you had to go through the regular news media to get to them. And uh, uh, that's, uh, uh, you know, I'll have to tell you, the people behind this bill, there's about 12 companies. They're some of the, the biggest multinational companies in the world. And uh, there's just been a few of us here fighting this battle. So it really is David versus Goliath. And it's an attempt by these big guys to screw over the little guys and steal their, their patents. And, and where are these patents going to go? A lot of them are going to go overseas. Uh, so uh, uh, there's once the public understands the magnitude, the threat of this, the big guy versus little guy, and how our technology is going to be used against us, uh, it, people start paying attention then, but they got to hear it first. Now, this would be very significant, I imagine, for startups in, in your district and in California and generally. Oh, big time, because startups don't have money for uh, you know a stable of lawyers these mega corporations that are behind this, as well as, I might add, foreign cyber attackers and people who are overseas just licking their chops, waiting to uh, be able to take, uh, for example, right now, if you're issued your patent, you basically, a, a small guy, can go into uh, uh, commercializing his product. But under this new law, uh, he would be susceptible to challenges to his uh patent even after the patent's been issued so what you've got are these uh companies take take uh, these big chinese companies how are they what are they going to do they're going to they're going to tie up the little guy with with litigation and with challenges over and over company after company after company will challenge it and uh, the the time will be eaten up and uh, the the inventor will get nothing well, um, Congressman, I really want to thank you for joining us. I know we only have a little bit of time, and we actually have to sign off shortly as well. But um, you know, taking on this this kind of complex issue and really you know giving putting it fire to it, um, you deserve a lot of credit. And um, hopefully, well, everybody has to you... join in this fight, or we're going to lose. Everybody needs to call their congressman and say no on the on the patent ripoff bill, HR twelve forty nine. That's HR twelve forty nine, the patent ripoff bill. And uh, if enough people call, we're going to, we would, the little guys, we little guys will have thwarted these corporate, these multinational corporate giants. Well, I hope someone sends you a pocket protector to recognize your, your role in, in helping out the patent geeks of the world. And, um, but thank you for taking this issue on and please keep us posted. You got it. And uh, uh, let's do this again next week when I think the, the bill will probably come up next week. Happily. Um, everyone, that was Congressman Dana Rohrbacher um, from California in Orange County. And thank you very much, Congressman, and, and good luck. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.